Hello, I'm Keith Hinton, and this is the Dare to Hope podcast. Thanks for joining us today. You know, social media is full of before and after stories of one kind or another. Sometimes there's reference to a home remodel project, and the owner posts pictures that allow us to visualize the transformation. Quite often, I've seen images of people before and after they've lost significant amounts of weight. In fact, the culture around us promotes numerous claims of life-transforming formulas, from food to finance. Now, though you won't see many pictures about it on social media, as followers of Jesus, we have first-hand knowledge of true life transformation. Not only have we experienced profound personal life change, often we have also been privileged to witness transformation in other people, all because of Jesus Christ. I'm fond of referring to such accounts as before and after stories. Simply put, one might say, before I asked Jesus Christ into my life, I was like this. But after meeting Jesus, here's what's changed. Things are completely different now. Well, in Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul describes why such transformation is necessary and how God makes it possible. Listen to this before and after story. Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to these words. They grip my heart. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. Isn't that powerful? Jim Simbola is the pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York City. And Pastor Simola tells about an incident on an Easter Sunday morning after the service was over. He said he was tired, a little weary, but he was just coming down out of the pulpit and people were filing out when he looked back toward the back of the sanctuary and there was a guy coming toward him. This fellow was disheveled in his look. He was, he was dirty. He wasn't presentable in any way. 
Uh, Pastor Simbola said he thought he must be in his 50s. As he walked toward him, he realized that he smelled worse than anything he had smelled before in his life. What he assumed was that this man was there for a handout. He talked to him for just a moment. He learned that his name was David. He learned that he had been out on the streets for about six years. He also learned that he was only 32 and not 50. Though the uh, policy of the church was to, with people who were wanting a handout was usually just to take them someplace and get them something to eat, Pastor Simbola kind of wanted to get this over with and get rid of it. It was Easter after all. So he reached in his back pocket, he pulled out his wallet, and he started to hand David some cash. David put up his hands, said, no, I don't want your money. I want this Jesus you've been talking about. He said, i got to have Jesus. I'm dying. I'm not going to make it living on the streets the way I am. I need him. Pastor Simbola said in that moment, he himself broke down and wept. He wept because of his insensitivity in that moment. For him to assume that this man wanted a handout, for him not to even think that he might want Jesus, was convicting, and he wept. And pretty soon, David was weeping. And after a few minutes, or maybe less than that, David actually went to, to Pastor Simbola, put his head right on his chest and wept and cried and prayed. And there, with his head on Pastor Simbola's chest, and pastor's arms around him, David received Jesus Christ as his Savior. Pastor Simbola said on that day, God, through Christ, changed David's life. He goes on and he writes, this is Pastor Simbola. He says he started memorizing portions of Scripture that were incredible. We got him a place to live. We hired him in the church to do maintenance. We got his teeth fixed. He was a handsome man when he came out of the hospital. They detoxed him in six days. A year later, David got up and talked about his conversion to Christ. And the minute he took the mic, Simbola says, I said to myself as he began to speak, this man is a preacher. And then he adds, later, they ordained David, and at the time he wrote these words, David was an associate pastor in a church in New Jersey. What I'm telling you is, there was a dramatic change that took place. David's life was a mess. He was broken, alone, with no hope. But when he truly believed, God's grace saved him and radically changed his life. It is a very dramatic before and after story, don't you think? Now most of us might think that our story isn't quite as dramatic as all that. But the fact is, from God's perspective, it was dramatic. 
Our self-righteousness was as filthy rags. And the stretch, the, the stench of our sins was so bad that it actually was offensive to God. But God's grace has made it possible for Him to offer us salvation without which we would have absolutely no hope. God did a wonderful thing for us. And in these verses of Ephesians 2, Paul is painting a before and after picture for us. And the before picture is not very flattering. In fact, it's, it's hard to imagine it being much worse. He says, we are dead. The first word he uses in the, in the chapter is we are dead. It doesn't get much worse than that, does it? So apart from Christ, in our pre-conversion state, we are spiritually dead. That's the result of sin. Because sin destroys. Sin annihilates. Sin kills. May I just remind you of four things that sin kills? Four things that sin will kill. First of all, it kills our innocence. Before sin entered the world, Adam and Eve were innocent. But when they disobeyed God, they lost their innocence. And all of us, when we disobey God, lose the innocence. No one is ever the same after he or she sins. Sin deceives us. It mocks us. It kills our innocence. It also kills our ideals. I think God has put within us as we are born, He's put within us certain ideals that sin destroys. The sinful act may first be viewed as we look at it with horror. No, no, I would never do that. But then we consider it a little more and we finally do it. And then pretty soon, not only are we doing it, we're not even seeing that it's wrong anymore. It's okay for us to do it because sin has destroyed our ideals. Sin will kill our hope. Verse 12 acknowledges that our sinful state that in our sinful state we are without God and we are without hope. And hopelessness erodes our will to resist. And so after a while, because we think there is no hope for us to change, we become convinced that we can never break the habits of sin, and so we give up. We have no hope. We're controlled by sin. And then, of course, the Scriptures remind us that sin kills our soul. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, he said, that will he also reap. The soul that sins will die. For the wages of sin is death. And that's what Paul's saying. We were dead because of disobedience and our many sins. But then we move a little further down. The second part of the before picture is described in the terms of, of forces we are powerless against. It is as though we are in slavery with no hope of freedom. Let me just mention five forces we can't conquer. 
There is the force of the ways of the world. He refers to it in verse 2 just like the rest of the world. The ways of the world, the force of this world, squeezes us into its own mold and we live life according to the world's standards and the world's values. And it is a force in our lives that we are powerless to conquer in ourselves. There is also the, uh, the influence of Satan in our lives, a force that we can't conquer. We live a life subject to the whims and dictates of satanic influence. Nobody would be quick to admit they are being controlled by Satan, but if we have not been set free by Christ, then Satan surely is in control. Is he not? The devil is active in our world and is working to keep us from God. And without Christ, we are powerless against his force in our lives. It is a force we can't conquer. And then he goes on and he mentions there in verse 3, passionate desires, which I, I just termed the cravings of the flesh. One of the words Paul uses here usually means desire for the wrong and the forbidden thing. And when those things, those desires grip us, they drive us with a relentless force to commit all kinds of evil for their gratification. And then he mentions the sinful nature. Passionate desires seems to have reference to our fleshly, our human needs, often legitimate needs that we fulfill illegitimately. But in addition to those needs, we have what he's calling the sinful nature. In fact, the word Paul uses refers to the mind. It has to do with our way of thinking. The fact is, our unregenerate nature is to think opposite of God's thoughts and opposite of His plans for us. Our sinful nature. And then there is the wrath of God, a force we cannot conquer. A life driven by these ungodly forces must also endure the the force of God's anger. In that state, we are, by nature, children of wrath. That's what the Scripture says. So this life is only deserving of the wrath of God. And this is a pretty helpless place to be. Wrath is a strong word. It means God's holy anger against sin and the judgment that results. And that's the word Paul uses to describe God's response to our sinful state prior to the coming of Christ. So there you have it. There you have our before picture. And in that condition, we have absolutely no hope. We are lost forever. However, look at the first two words of verse 4. But God. But God. Have you ever paid attention to how many times in the Scripture that God intervenes in the human situation and after describing the dark picture, the writer says, but God did such and such. He says it 
over and over again, and I can't, I don't have time to tell you every situation I'm referring to, but just listen. You know, over in Genesis, he says, but God did not allow, he did not allow you to harm me. You did not send me here, but God, but God shall be with you, but God mended for good, but God cut open a place and water came out. For the battle, he says, is not yours, but God's. But God will redeem my soul from the hand of the grave. But God is the strength of my heart. But God shall rebuke them. But God said. But God knows your hearts. But God was with him. But God has shown me. But God raised him up the third day. But God raised him from the dead. But God was chosen. But God was revealed. But God gave the increase. No temptation has taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above that which you're able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape. But God had mercy on him. We could do this all day. Because God is intervening in the human dilemma. And we come to our text then, we were lost with no hope, but God is so rich in mercy, and He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, He gave us life when He raised Christ from the dead. It is the only hope we have. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. Thank God. But God. So when God intervened, He did some things. Let me just remind you of three things God did. He made us alive, according to verse 5. He made us alive. Now that's the power of the resurrection. God took what was dead and made it alive. That's quite a miracle. In verse 1, we were dead, but God made us alive, he says. That is the best before and after story ever. I was dead, but God made me alive. The angel said to the women on Easter morning, you remember, why are you seeking the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. The book of Romans assures us that as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. He raised us up. He made us alive. The second one is, He raised us up. For He raised us with Him. Verse 6. Now, when I think about that, I realize that when he does that, he takes us to a new level. We have a new citizenship. And before, we were citizens of the world and Satan's kingdom, but now he has raised us up. And we are citizens of heaven and part of God's kingdom. Amen. He's raised us up. And the third thing he did is he seated us with him. Verse 6. For He seated us with Him. Because we are seated with Him, we have a new perspective on life. He has a whole different perspective. We have a new vision. We have a new understanding. We have a new purpose. Somebody might say, well, who are we to sit with Christ around His throne? Let me tell you. We are God's children. We've been raised up 
And because of God's grace, we belong there. We have citizenship there. And that's where our loyalty and life and worship belong, seated in heaven with Christ. God did three things, at least. But the passage also reveals, I think, three things we must do. The first one is good works. That's what it's about when he's talking to us in verse 10. We can do good works he planned for us. Now let me tell you, our good works are meant, according to the passage there, are meant to show off his grace and magnify his willingness to be merciful to a sinful world that is spiritually dead and deserving of his wrath. So he uses us to show off his grace. Did you know God was a show off? And if anybody had a right to show off, surely he would, wouldn't he? But he wants to show off his grace He wants to show off His mercy. He wants the world to know that He is a God of grace and mercy. And our works must be of such a nature as to be compatible with His mission to seek and to save the lost. But there's something that goes along with those good works. I see it in verse 14. We also need to tear down barriers. He has destroyed the barrier, Paul writes. Now in this instance, Paul is talking about the barrier that existed between the Jewish and Gentile people. He argues that now there is no barrier. That God broke down the wall of hostility that separated them. Get it? There's no barrier anymore. God tore it down. Now they've come together. Now they're unified in Christ. What I'm contending today is we should be about the business of tearing down every barrier, every wall of hostility that separates men and women from Jesus Christ. By doing that, we're, that's part of the seeking after them. It's part of bringing people to Jesus. We need to be tearing down ethnic barriers and relational barriers, what I called notional barriers. You know what a notion is? It's something you're thinking that isn't based on fact. It's just a notion. And sometimes those are barriers, traditional barriers. When you give to world missions and give your your money as a faith promise God supplies through that, What you're doing is tearing down economic barriers so it's possible for people to share the gospel around the world. We need to be about the business of tearing down any wall of hostility, every wall of hostility that we find. Our godlike work, which by the way is the definition of good works, it's godlike work, must include getting out of the way any stumbling block that keeps people separated from Christ. We need to be tearing down barriers. You still all right? And finally, we have the privilege to build up God's dwelling. Verse 22, we are carefully joined together in Him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. 
Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. Where does God dwell? He dwells with his people. Here Paul is saying that God has made it possible not only for Jews to be his dwelling place, but, for also, but also for the Gentiles to be his dwelling place. And that's all a result of God's plan of salvation. So our task is to cooperate with God to continue building up this holy temple for the Lord, the body of Christ. That is to say, we must be about bringing men and women including teens and children, bringing them to Jesus. Can you say amen there? The fact is, we want everyone to experience their own personal after story. Don't you want that? You know, you think about yours, and we've talked about that before. You've got a before story, and you've got an after story. We want everybody to have their own after story. We pray that there will be many people who, like Jim Symbolist David, are dead because of their disobedience and many sins, but these people will experience the absolutely amazing transformation that Christ can bring to their life. That's what our hope is. That's what our prayers are about. That's what God wants us to do. Before and after. Do you have a personal after story? Jesus knows and understands all about your before story, and no matter what the contents of that story might be, it can all be in the past. God has said that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. All over the world, thousands of people can testify to the dramatic transformation that is their after story since they invited Jesus into their life. Your after story can begin today, right now, if that's the desire of your heart. In your own words, tell God you're sorry for the mess you've made of things and invite Jesus Christ to be in charge of your life from this day forward. Then, as you follow Jesus, Begin to enjoy the after story he is writing in your life. Thanks for listening. Visit us on the web at daretohope.life. That's dare, the number two, hope.life. Or follow us on Facebook. Send your email to hope at daretohope.life. We would love to hear your after story. Until the next time, I remain thankful that in Christ we can still dare to hope. Oh, Christ, then.